If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 14. A couple of weeks ago, we began our study, continued our study in Romans, and we began into chapter 14. And as we did so, we noted a couple of things. One, that as we make our way into chapter 14, Paul is moving from his kind of general exhortations to love one another, as he gave us in 12 and 13, to now some very specific exhortations to love one another. And he's also giving the second thing that we noted last week is he's giving these specific exhortations particularly and specifically to the body of Christ, to the church. And, And so he's talking about these situations, these circumstances within the body of Christ, within the church, where we need to pay particular attention and be concerned about how we are loving one another. And the circumstances that he addresses in chapter 14 are these disagreements, these quarrels that were happening within the church, within the body of Christ, about secondary matters. Disunity and division that was popping up its head in the church over what Martin Lloyd-Jones called morbid scrupulosity, issues and matters of morbid scrupulosity, things that aren't necessarily covered in black and white in Scripture, but about which believers in Christ, genuine believers in Christ, had very strong feelings and convictions about. There were disagreements and, and division and quarreling in the church because of this. We saw last week that Paul gave two very specific examples of this sort of thing that were happening. The first that we covered last time was the the differing opinions regarding dietary restrictions and whether or not Christians could eat meat or whether they should be they should limit their restrict their diet to eating only vegetables. The second example that we're going to cover this morning was the differing opinions regarding the observance or non-observance of special days that were on the calendar, whether or not there were certain holy days and religious days that should be observed and ought to be observed in a certain way, or whether all days should be esteemed alike. And there were divisions and quarreling about that as well. So this morning as we look at chapter 14, I want us to, by way of context, read the first 12 verses But we're going to focus our time this morning beginning with verse 5. But I want to read 1 through 12. This is the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then our text for this morning. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we continue our study in this part of the book of Romans, there is a likelihood that there may be those among us who either weren't with us through the first 11 chapters or did not fully accept everything in the first 11 chapters. So Father, as we are encountering these exhortations from Scripture in this part of this letter, Far be it from us, Father, that we should take those in, in a sense that we can somehow make ourselves acceptable to you by how we obey these exhortations. Father, may we be floored again by the gospel that Paul gave us in the first 11 chapters, that, that every single one of us is, because of our sin, lost and separated from a holy God and deserving of eternal judgment, deserving of an eternity apart from you. But you and your divine wisdom and your divine love and your sovereign grace, you determined to send your son from your side to live among us, to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die in our place so that by faith in him, we might receive the righteousness that we could never attain on our own the righteousness of Jesus, and be made acceptable to you, not based on our own right living and and obedience to these kinds of exhortations that we're hearing this morning, but simply because of the perfect life and the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so God, may may, may that ring clear to us this morning, Father, that, that we must trust in the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a means of grace. And Father, may we hear these exhortations and these calls to obedience and these these specific exhortations to love one another, not so that we would make ourselves acceptable to you, but because you have already made us acceptable in Christ, and we want to live out, out of just gratefulness for what you've done for us as a means of honoring and glorifying you and living for your glory. And so in that spirit, Lord, May you teach us from your word this morning. Father, give me the strength that is not within me. Give me um, just a, a covering of your Holy Spirit this morning to stay anchored to your text. And may you, through your spirit, teach us from your word and give us understanding and give us application. Father, from this passage, would you root out division and disunity in the body of Christ, even within our own fellowship over differing opinions about secondary matters so that we would be a church, Father, that truly brings glory to you. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. So I was given a wired mic. Am I supposed to use this? 
All right. How, how that, how, how's that for subtlety? There we go. All right. So uh, Paul, in this passage in Romans chapter 14, um, he, he mentions that there were two groups of people um, in the church in Rome, uh, two groups of people uh, in this passage, and really throughout this entire chapter into the first few verses of chapter 15. So he's talking about, first of all, the brother or sister in Christ who is weak in the faith, weak in the faith, and then second of all, the brother or sister in Christ who is strong in the faith. And we mentioned last time that those are relative terms, that we are both the weaker brother or sister and the stronger brother or sister. There are those always in the body of Christ who are stronger in the faith than we are, and there are some that perhaps are weaker in the faith than we are as well. But there are two groups of people, and we noted last time that the weaker brother's weakness in the faith was not with respect to the fact that he didn't have faith or that his faith was somehow disingenuous disingenuous or, or not authentic, but instead, in, in, in fact, the weaker brother, we saw all throughout this chapter, Paul commends the weaker brother. He, he's commended for his uh, authentic, authentic faith and his genuineness in his faith. And, and, and the weaker brother is very concerned about honoring God and bringing glory to God and living in such a way that it, that it uh, worships God and gives thanks to God for his grace. So instead, his, his being weaker in the faith was a reflection of his lack of understanding in the Christian teachings in some regard. It was more of a matter of discipleship than it was a matter of conversion or motive. So in some regard, there was a deficiency in his understanding of Christian doctrine, specifically with respect to his comprehension of the gospel and its implications for how we live our daily life. And we noted last time that this could be due to a number of different reasons. Maybe it was because he, was a, he or she was a new believer. Or maybe he wasn't a new believer, but he just was never discipled. There was a lack of discipleship in his life. Or perhaps it was because he, had, he or she had given in to fear or anxiety. Or maybe his faith wasn't strong because it had never been tested yet through suffering and trial. But for whatever reason, there was a deficiency in his or her understanding about the Christian teaching, the Christian doctrine in some regard. And the problem was that this brother or sister who was weak in the faith, weaker in the faith, they had erected some supra-biblical boundaries, some extra-biblical boundaries, restrictions or requirements that they had set for themselves that the Bible did not restrict or require. And again, the first example that he gave us in this passage in Romans 14 was that of a dietary restriction that the weaker brother had implemented in his life. They were saying that if you're a Christ follower, if you're really a believer in Jesus, then you need to restrict your diet to eating only vegetables. For some reason, again, whether they were a new believer or there was a lack of discipleship or maybe because they were giving in to fear and anxiety, anxiety about idols and idol worship, which some of this meat may have been offered to. But for whatever reason, they were saying that meat should be off limits to Christians. 
But the problem was not just that they were limiting themselves to eating only vegetables. That was one thing. But they went beyond that, and they were now passing judgment on those believers in the church who were eating vegetables, whose conscience was not bound to eating only vegetables. And this was causing, obviously, division and disunity and all kinds of quarrels within the church. And it wasn't loving to one another, which Paul is exhorting us to in this whole passage of Scripture. It wasn't loving to one another to have those quarrels with one another. Nor was it glorifying to God. And also it had the great potential to do great damage to their witness to a lost world around them, their gospel witness. And so Paul exhorted them not to give in to those quarrels, not to pass judgment on one another, not to despise one another and hold one another in contempt because of their differing opinions about these secondary matters, but instead to welcome one another in love. Now the second example to which we turn our attention to now, which begins in verse 5 of Romans 14, has to do with observing certain days as more important or more holy than other days. So Paul sets up this conflict in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And then he says later in verse 6, he talks about observing certain days or not observing certain days. So again, you got these two groups of people. In the first example, one group said, we should only be eating vegetables. The other group said, nope, we're fine to eat meat. In this example, one group was saying, listen, there are these certain days on the calendar that, that it's required of us, that we need to observe these in a certain way. And there were others who were saying, actually, no, all days are alike. There are no special days. And it was given rise to all kinds of division and disunity in the body of Christ. But the interesting thing here is that Paul says that they're both honoring the Lord in what they do. Look at verse 6. It says, the one who observes the day, observes it how? Observes it in honor of the Lord. So that, that in the context, that would be the one who is weaker in the faith. They're, they're, they're saying there are these different days that we're required to, to honor them in a certain way. We're, we're required to observe these special days in a certain way. Their motive was to honor the Lord. Their motive was good and right and pure. They were honoring the Lord in that. It goes on to say the one who eats, which is the one who is stronger in the faith, as we learned last time, the one who eats, he eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, that's the weaker in the faith again, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So, so the one who thinks one day is more consecrated than another day and should be observed in a certain way, observe those days in such a way that they were honoring the Lord in all authenticity and, and genuineness. They were honoring the Lord and giving thanks to God, just as the one who restricted his diet to eating only vegetables, as we saw a couple weeks ago. And on the other hand, the one who esteemed all days alike and didn't see any of these days as being more holy or less holy than any other day, and so they said, well, we don't have to observe them. They were not observing them in a way that gave honor and glory to God and gave thanks to God, just as the one who did eat meat, as we learned last time, they were eating meat to God's glory and giving thanks to God for his provision, including 
that meat. So what the question for us here in looking at this second example is what does Paul mean when he refers to that day? What, what is that day that some were esteeming as more holy or more consecrated that required to be observed more than other days? What is that day? Well, there's a lot of different opinions on this. Some have said that what Paul is referring to here is the keeping of the Sabbath. There, there are some days that, that we have to keep more holy than others. And so some have said this passage is referring, Paul is referring here to observance of the Sabbath for, for the New Testament church. Others have said that what Paul is actually referring to here is not necessarily or specifically the Sabbath, but more generally a myriad of other special days or holy days that might be on the liturgical calendar that should be observed throughout the year. So which is it? Is it the Sabbath or these other holy days? Well, my conclusion is yes. It's not either or, it's both and. Um, After reading through a lot of different commentaries and searching the scriptures for other references that speak to this issue, it's my conclusion that Paul probably had both of these concerns in mind when he was writing this letter. I think certainly there were divisions and quarrels within the early church uh, during, among believers during Paul's day who argued about the Sabbath, who argued about what day it should be. Should it, should it still be the seventh day, the last day of the week? Or is it now the first day of the week? Which day is it? And how do we observe it? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? Are all those laws and requirements about the Sabbath still in effect? There were certainly lots of those who um, were arguing about that. But I think also there were plenty within the, the, the body of Christ during Paul's day who were also arguing about these other special days, that there were certain days on the calendar that we need to set aside and, and observe in a more special way and, and, and are holier than other days, and that there were divisions and quarrels about that as well. So there were divisions and quarrels and disunity in the body of Christ during Paul's day about those things, but I would submit to you also within our day that there are divisions and potential quarrels about these sorts of things in the church of Jesus Christ today. So the first question that we have to tackle here in in this particular example and the first opportunity that we have to uh, wrestle with that is an opportunity for division and disunity in the body is which day of the week is the Sabbath. That there was disagreement about this then and there's disagreement about this today. Some say that the real Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. This comes from the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord worked for six days in creating everything and then on the seventh day he rested and he set that day aside as a day of rest. Of course this was later formalized in the moral code when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the nation of Israel. This was the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In fact, in the middle, mid-1600s, there was a, a group of Baptists that separated from the other Baptists in England in the mid-17th century over this particular issue, and they became Seventh-day Baptists, Sabbatarian Baptists. And that gave, eventually gave rise in the 19th century to Seventh-day Adventists. So there was those who thought that. Others today 
say that upon Jesus' resurrection, the Sabbath is now the first day of the week. So just as the completion of creation was observed by a day of rest on the seventh day, now God's completion of recreation in Christ, marked by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which happened on the first day of the week, that his recreation in Christ is now recognized by a day of rest on the first day of the week. So, so now that day is the Sabbath, some would argue. And so the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is the new Sabbath. Some say that. But still others say it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what day of the week is your day of rest as long as you take a day of rest. Most of us who are gathered here today set aside the first day of the week, Sunday, as a day of rest. But I don't. In fact, some say that today's the only day that preachers work. Sunday's the only day that preachers work. And that may be the case. Whether or not I work on other days can be argued, but what can't argue is that today is a day of rest for me. It's not. It never is. And so along with the elders' permission, I take Mondays off. Monday is my day of rest, my Sabbath, if you will where I cease from my regular activities and take stock of my soul, take stock of the gospel and contemplate that. But the question is, can anyone do that? Is there truly anything special about Sunday? Is there truly anything special about the first day of the week that would preclude any of us from taking any other day of the week as our Sabbath? So we can see there plenty of room for disagreement, right? Plenty of room for division and disunity and potentially quarrels within the body of Christ. There was then and there is now. But then secondly, there's also the issue of how we observe the Sabbath. What can we do? What can't we do? What is required of us on the Sabbath? How ought we to observe this? This is the second question that we have to wrestle with here as Paul addresses this. And the second opportunity for division. Now strict Sabbatarians will argue that since since Sabbath keeping is one of the Ten Commandments, it is it's part of the moral law, the moral code, which, which never goes away. It's given to the nation of Israel and given to the church today. That because of that, that all Sabbath laws regarding the Sabbath are still in effect. So let's say regardless of whether you observe it on the seventh day or the first day or whatever day, you must observe it and you must keep it holy and all those restrictions. There's no work. Some of them say there's no recreation, that you you don't plant flowers, you don't mow your yacht, any of that kind of stuff, that that's still in effect. I think it's clear, I think we, we can say without equivocation that as we read various passages of the New Testament, that it was the habit of the early church to gather on the first day of the week. And so whatever Sabbath keeping is, part of it, we would say, must include the gathering of the body of Christ to worship God. But additionally, there's that concept of a day of rest that became attached to the celebration of the Lord's Day because of that attachment to the story of the creation story and and the seventh day being the day of rest, that now that's on the first day. That gave rise, of course, um, in the 17th century, 16th century in England to those blue laws. And then those blue laws, which forbade commerce on Sunday, were, were immigrated, if you will, to the colonies, and they became a part of uh, American uh, law. Now today, we don't have a whole lot of those blue laws left. 
which by the way, in some cases, makes it very difficult for someone to have the first day of the week as a day of rest because it's quite possible that your, your job would require you to work on Sunday. Whereas in those days, it was outlawed. You weren't able to work at your job because your job was required to be closed. Times have changed. That is not the case today. And then also, we read the gospel accounts. We hear about Jesus' run-in with the Pharisees when he heals on the Sabbath, right? When he heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath that's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And when he heals the woman who was bent over from birth as recorded in Luke chapter 13. That was forbade, strictly forbidden by the Sabbath laws. But, but Jesus defends his, his violating those Sabbath laws. He, he defends that by saying, listen, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he instituted um, that it was acceptable to help others on the Sabbath. That acts of mercy are good and right on the Sabbath. That it's okay to, to extend help to others, even if it meant work, healing someone was defined by the Pharisees as work on the Sabbath. But Jesus institutes, no, it's okay to help people and to to do acts of mercy. But some people have taken that a step further and said, because that's part of Sabbath keeping, then you're required to do acts of mercy and to help others on the Sabbath. And so that's part of now what is required. So again, even with this second question, we see lots of potential for disagreement, for division and disunity within the body of Christ. But then there's this third question, this third opportunity to, for, for division. When you consider the differing opinions regarding the observation of or the non-observation of these special days that might be on the calendar, these holy or religious days. So perhaps in chapter 14, what, Paul was referring not to the Sabbath, but he was referring to these other days that some were saying this is a holy day and we ought to do this on this day or we ought to have a feast on this day or we ought to have a fast on this day if we're really believers in Jesus. So what does he mean there? What is he referring to about those holy days if he's considering that as part of his writing here? We know elsewhere in Paul's writings he he addresses these other holy days. When he's writing to the churches in Galatia, he was concerned about their observance of these days. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul exasperates, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What was the problem with their observance of days and months and seasons and years? Well, the Galatians had given in to the extreme thinking of thinking that their remaining in right standing with God depended in large part on their observing of these special days. And if they didn't observe these special days in a certain way, that they would fall out of God's good graces. I think Paul was addressing this same error when he writes to the church in Colossae in Colossians 2 16 and 17, when he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
But, you know, the churches in Galatia and the church in Colossae are not the only churches to have gotten mixed up on this kind of issue. The Roman Catholic Church has what's known as the Holy Days of Obligation. That's what they're called. The Holy Days of Obligation. They are special days, non-Sunday days that are on the calendar wherein Catholics are required to take Mass on those days. So not only do they have to take Mass on Sundays in order to stay in God's good graces, now they also have to take Mass on these special non-Sunday holy days in order to stay in God's good graces. Among these holy days of obligation are things like All Saints Day and Christmas Day. In fact, that's how Christmas got its name. Originally, it was the Christ Mass. Now, the Puritans, which we in large part revere, and and to a large degree we refer to because of their commitment to the gospel and their commitment to scriptures, the Puritans didn't celebrate any of these days. They didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't celebrate Easter. They didn't celebrate Lent or Good Friday. They didn't even celebrate birthdays or anything like that. The Puritans were a product of the Protestant Reformation, as we are. But to a large degree, they felt like the Protestant Reformation didn't go far enough. And in their desire to excoriate themselves from any influence of the Roman Catholic Church and their desire to eliminate any influence of Roman Catholicism on the Protestant Church, they prohibited the observance of all of these days. In fact, I found a note of a public notice in 1659 in Boston. Boston was a Puritan established city when it was first established and there was a public notice that was nailed up to a post in 1659 in Boston that read this. Public notice. The observance of Christmas having been deemed a sacrilege, the exchanging of gifts and greetings, dressing in fine clothing, feasting, and similar satanic exercises are hereby forbidden with the offender liable to a fine of five shillings. God bless those Puritans, right? Did they go too far? What, what about us? Do you celebrate Christmas? Do you celebrate Easter? We're in a season of Lent. I would imagine that if we went around and we polled one another, some of you are observing Lent to a certain degree, and you're abstaining from something during Lent as an observ- observation of Lent. Others say, no way, I'm not going to observe Lent. It's too Roman Catholic for me, right? What about our celebrations of birthdays, New Year's Day, things like that? Our church has always had a special service on Good Friday. We're planning one for Good Friday this year where we set aside some time to consider the crucifixion and what Jesus did on the cross in hopes that Easter Sunday will be that much more meaningful as we celebrate his resurrection. Are we in error for doing so? Some in Paul's day would say, yeah, you are. 
some in Puritan-controlled New England and Boston and England would have said so, and perhaps some today, maybe even in this room, say so. That it has the potential for division and disunity within the body of Christ, because there's differing opinions about that. This is what Paul, part of what Paul was addressing here. So what is his solution? What is Paul's answer, his exhortation to this concern? Listen to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. That's the problem. That's the potential for conflict. What is his solution? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's his answer. How in the world does that solve anything, right? It it seems like almost on the surface that that is going to make things worse. Think, Think of the setting again. You've got a church where people have different opinions about these matters. And again, these are matters that are not explicitly laid out in Scripture, black and white, right or wrong, moral and moral. These are secondary matters, matters of morbid scrupulosity. And people have different opinions about this, about the Sabbath, which day it is, how to observe it. Whether to observe this day or that day or this day, or to not observe that we shouldn't observe, we ought not to observe those days. You've got a church where people have differing opinions about these sorts of matters. And one might expect Paul to say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't don't sweat the small stuff. It's not that important. Just lighten up on this stuff. It it seems to me that that would be the best way to uh, avoid division and to suppress disunity and quarrels about these things. Just, Just affirm that they're not important. Just, just affirm that they're not important and, and tell folks, lighten up. Don't, don't sweat the small stuff. That, that would certainly seem to reduce the level of division and quarreling. But Paul doesn't do that. In fact, he does what we might say is the exact opposite of that. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So there's division, there's disunity, there's quarreling about these things. And Paul says, don't take this stuff lightly. Instead, be fully convinced about this stuff in your own mind. In one sense, that would that would seem that might seem to make the division and disunity even worse. As Christians on either side of these issues kind of dig in their respective heels and affirm their position now with even greater conviction. So why does he say that? Why is that his answer? Why is that his solution to the potential conflict in the church? I believe the reason is because the motive for doing these things or not doing these things, the motive behind that is more important than the action itself, at least with respect to these secondary matters, at least with respect to these items that Martin Lloyd-Jones calls morbid scrupulosity, disputable matters. Matters of doubtful disputation, as the King James puts it. Now, this is not the case with every action that the Bible requires. It's not the case with every attitude or thought that the Bible tells us to have. There are some actions that are required of us by Scripture, and so we do them, we ought to obey them, regardless of whether whether or not we feel our actions are, are genuine in that regard. Do not murder. Well... You know, I, I don't know if I can really say that I'm, I'm, my motive is really pure behind, you know, not murdering. And so I, I don't want to be disingenuous, and so I'm going to go ahead and murder. 
obviously that's not going to cut it at all. But with respect to these secondary matters, our action, our obedience is not nearly as important as why we do them, the motive behind them. With observing or not observing holy days, eating meat or not eating meat. In instances like that, and we could go on, that are not dictated in Scripture one way or the other, our motive is more important than our action. And so what ought to be our motive? Paul tells us in verse 6, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, he eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So whether we eat or don't eat, Paul says, and whether we observe this day and that day or don't observe this day or that day, the motive should be to bring honor and glory to God. And that is the highest motive that man can have because that is the very reason for our existence. And that is the very reason for God recreating us in Christ and restoring us to be what? Worshippers. Ones who would give glory to Him, not just in the songs that we sing as we gather, but in how we live our lives and the decisions that we make and the things that we engage in or don't engage in and the things that we participate in or abstain from, that it would be to honor and glorify God. And because that motive is so important, so important that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in other words, it's not really about whether you eat or drink. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, he says, do it all for the glory of God. That is our highest motive. And because that motive is so important, then we must be fully convinced in our own mind about these matters. Why? Because if we're not, if we're not convinced either about our obligation to do something or our obligation to abstain from doing something, or of our freedom to do something, or our freedom to not do something, then if we do it or we don't do it, then we're doing it or or not doing it, not for God, but for ourselves. And so at this point, we should really ask ourselves, with respect to these issues of secondary importance, these, these matters of morbid scrupulosity, we should ask ourselves, why? Why do we do them? Or why do we abstain from doing them? Eat meat, don't eat meat. Observe this holy day, don't observe this holy day. Drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol. Go to an R-rated movie, don't go to an R-rated movie. Whatever the issue is, as long as it's something that's not strictly forbidden or required by Scripture... The question which must must govern our decision to either engage in that activity or abstain from engaging in in that activity, the question which must govern our decision in that regard is, is my decision in this matter being compelled and driven by a desire to bring glory to God or is it being compelled and driven by a desire for me to be seen as holy? And righteous by others. That's often where we fail in this regard. 
It's where the Pharisees failed in this regard, right? We remember what Jesus said of them in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. For them, for the Pharisees, it wasn't about praying. It was about others seeing them as praying. So Jesus said their habit is to stand on the, in the synagogue and on the street corners and pray to be seen by man. And what did Jesus say? They've got their reward in full. If, if what they're after is the praise of men, that's what they get. And that's all that they get. He went on to say, it, you know, it's, for them, it's not about giving to the needy. It's about others seeing them as giving to the needy. And so they would blow a trumpet and make a big sound, a big show of it as they gave to the needy. The question for us is, are we driven to make decisions about what we do or don't do based more on how others see us and perceive us or on whether or not our engagement in that activity or our abstinence from engaging in that activity is glorifying to God. Think about it. When you decide what you're going to watch on TV, is that for yourself or is that for others or is that for God? When you wake up tomorrow morning and you have a devotional and you read your Bible and you spend time praying, why are you doing that? Are you doing that for yourself to be seen by others as being spiritual? Or are you doing that because you desperately love God and you want to be conformed to the image of His Son for His glory? If you go to a Bible study, why do you go to a Bible study? Is it because that's what's expected of you? So you want to make sure you live up to that expectation that others might have of you? Or are you doing that because you genuinely want to grow in your faith? When you're deciding what clothes you're going to wear, is that because you want people to see you in a certain way? Or are you being driven by a desire to glorify God? In dieting and working out, or in not dieting and not working out, that decision being compelled by? Are you being driven more by a desire to be accepted and liked by others or being driven by a desire to glorify God with your temple, the body that he's given to you? Whether you eat or drink, Paul says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So if you can wear that dress and and glorify God, then wear that dress and glorify God. But if you can't, then don't. If you can eat that steak to the glory of God, eat that steak to the glory of God. But if you can't, don't. I had a friend one time that kind of bound my conscience to not eating shrimp. He said, you know, that's, that's violating, you know, the commands of Scripture. And I, I tried to point out, actually, you know, Peter said, it's all good. You know, but I had to, why am I eating shrimp? You know, is it, is it, is it to try to, um, you know, kind of defend my right to do so with my brother? Or was I eating shrimp to the glory of God? I decided I was eating shrimp to the glory of God. So, <laughs> amen. The question is, why are you doing what you're doing? That's the, that's the question that Paul wants us to wrestle with. And in terms of what he's speaking about here in Romans 14, with respect to the activities of the weaker brother or the stronger brother in the faith, he's telling us that the activity itself at least with respect to these secondary matters, is not nearly as important 
as the reason why you're doing them. If you're going to abstain from eating meat, then fine. Abstain from that meat in a way that gives glory to God, not to yourself. If you're going to eat that meat, do so to the glory of God, thanking him for all of his provisions, including that steak or that fried shrimp. If you're going to observe certain days, do so. If you feel like you, 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 you ought to observe certain days, if, if, if you feel like your, your conscience says, I, I need to do this, then, then do that. But do it in a way that, that brings honor and glory to God, not as a show. But if you have full conviction that observing that special day is wrong, then, then, then you shouldn't do it. And, and, and I, I give you full license. If, if, if your conscience is bound that, that observing Good Friday is, is, is wrong for you, you have complete freedom not to be here on Good Friday. But please, don't blow your trumpet about that. Don't announce it on Facebook so that the world sees you as really spiritual and discerning in these areas. Instead, just, obse- just abstain from observing that day as a quiet and personal means of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Paul is reminding us here fundamentally that we are not our own. That we don't belong to ourselves. If God has saved you by grace through faith, if that's why you're here this morning. Now some of you might not be. Some of you might be here just investigating the claims of Christ. But if, you, if you're here because God has saved you by grace through faith, then you're not your own. And as someone who belongs to God, not only are we not our own, but we live not for ourselves but for him. If we're in the faith, we belong to the Lord. He has bought us with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so not only are we his, but all that we do is for him, not for us. It's for his glory. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verses 7 and 8. Look at, look at those two verses. He says, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Our living and all that happens in our living and even our dying are for his glory. If we live, he says, we are the Lord's. And so we live for his pleasure. We live for his glory. And if we die, well, we're still the Lord's. And we die for his pleasure, even in death, for his glory. And then Paul, in verse 9, ties all of this to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, for to this end, to the end of making us his, making us belong to him and live for his glory, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus died and rose again to make us his, to redeem us from sin and death out of the obligation to sin, no longer to be slaves of sin, now we are freed to become bond slaves of Christ. Now we're freed to be servants of God. He put it this way to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. 
And then in verses 10 through 12, Paul closes out this section on dietary opinions and opinions about observing certain days or not observing, uh, observing certain days. He gets back now to the really heart of the matter about how we treat one another and how we love one another in the body of Christ. So he gives here a summary in verses 10 through 12, a summary of his exhortations in this regard. He says, why do you pass judgment? That's a good question, right? If we pass judgment, why? Why do you pass judgment? And and when he's asking that question, he's asking that question of the one who is weaker in the faith. Why are you passing judgment on the one whose conscience is not bound in this regard? And then then he like looks to the other side of the room and he says, or you. Why do you despise your brother? Why do you, the one who is strong in their faith, why do you look down on the one who just needs some more discipleship and who is growing in their faith, who is learning the implications of the gospel? Their conscience is bound right now, so why would you look down on them? He says this, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what Paul is telling us is when we pass judgment on one another in these kinds of matters, or when we despise one another, when we look down on one another in these kinds of issues of morbid scrupulosity because of an extra-biblical requirement or restriction that the Bible doesn't require or restrict. What we're doing is that we are placing ourselves in the position that only God deserves. Our brother or sister doesn't exist for us. They don't exist for our pleasure. They exist for the pleasure of God. And if they are doing what they are doing for God's glory, or if they are abstaining from whatever it is that they're abstaining in for God's glory, then far be it from me to pass any judgment on them. Do we really think that our judgment of them is going to matter in the least? They and all of us, Paul says, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will give an account of ourselves to God. Our brother or sister will not stand before the judgment seat of Ken or the judgment seat of Bodhi or the judgment seat of Christy. God alone is their judge. So who are we to pass judgment on them in these matters or to look down on them and hold them in contempt because their conscience is bound in a certain way because they engage in this activity or they abstain from this activity for the glory of God, to honor and glorify God and to give Him thanks. So let us pray that God would be glorified in their engaging in the activity or abstaining from activity. Let's pray that God would be glorified in their life. And let us praise God that ultimately their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when they will one day, as we all will, give an account of our lives before God. And we who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be counted as forgiven and righteous, not because of our attempts to live righteously, but because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is ours by faith. Let us praise God that our brother or sister in the faith, that's why it's important for us to understand that the one who's weaker in the faith is not outside the faith, they're just weaker in the faith. They're still growing, they're progressing, they're being sanctified, and they're being discipled in the faith. So as we close, a couple of applications of this that jumped out at me. The first is that we need to be fully convinced in our own mind. 
in verses 5 through 12 in the Greek, that's the only imperative verb form. That's the only command in those seven verses. Be fully convinced in your own mind. And, and, and we interpret that to mean that we ought to be fully convinced so that we know why we're doing what we're doing. So that we know why we're abstaining from whatever is we're, we're abstaining from. Because if you're not doing it for the glory of God, then you're doing it or not doing it for the wrong reason. And in that case, we either need to change our motive or stop the activity or stop abstaining from the activity. The motive behind our engagement or our abstention is more important than whether or not we engage or abstain. Fundamentally, God is looking at our heart in these matters. God is looking at your heart in these kinds of secondary matters. So the question is, what does he see? Does he see a heart that is driven by self-righteousness and a desire to perform for others and live up to some kind of expectation that others might or might not have of you? Or does he see a heart that is truly and genuinely wants to bring honor and glory to God in all that you do, all that you say, all that you think? And if that is what he finds, then may God be praised no matter what it is that you're doing or not doing with respect to these secondary matters. So constantly ask yourself in these issues of morbid scrupulosity, ask yourself, whose am I? Whose am I? And who am I living for? Who, who, who do I want to look good as a result of my engaging in, in this activity or abstaining from engaging in this activity? And then a second application which is really a repeat from the first four verses, to stop passing judgment on one another in these issues. Stop passing judgment. Don't look down on one another. Don't despise your brother or sister. Don't hold them in contempt because they do a certain thing or don't do a certain thing. If they offend us and yet bring glory to God, then may God be praised for that. If I think you to be more holy or less holy because you dress a certain way or because you eat a certain food or because you observe a certain day or don't observe a certain day, what difference does that make? You don't exist for my glory. You exist for the glory of God. And so may we stop elevating ourselves to the position of God in that respect and judging one another's actions in these secondary matters. Instead, may we hope and pray that God is truly glorified in our brother or sister and whatever it is they do or don't do in respect to these secondary matters. Let's pray.